This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's kind of hard to imagine, but over the past few weeks in North America, we've seen the return of 70.3 events in Galveston, Texas, and Haines City, Florida. And next weekend, the event in St. George, Utah is scheduled to take place as well. I say it's hard to imagine, but perhaps what I should say is that it's more hard to reconcile. While it's true that with respect to COVID, things are a lot better in the United States than they were a few months ago, about half the country has received at least one shot of one of the three vaccines available here, and there is definitely some hope that we may get out of this at some point. However, I don't think that it's overstating things to say that it might be a tad premature to be going all in for mass gatherings. None of this is surprising, of course, and I'm not even sure where I come down on it, but I do feel that while there is a huge and very understandable desire to get back to some sense of normal, I also know that there is the risk that doing so too early can tend to prolong things. Last week, I was invited to participate in a webinar put on by USA Triathlon and Triathlete Magazine on the safe return to racing guidelines, and I think that it is safe to say that everyone's on the same page. We all agree that participating in a triathlon is, for the most part, a pretty low-risk endeavor, and even more so if you're vaccinated. The event is held outdoors, and the protocols being enacted at races to enforce social distancing and mitigate large gatherings are going to go a long way to help keep these events pretty safe. However, even if you're vaccinated, you shouldn't let your guard down, because it would be wrong to say that these events are completely safe. Consider the travel to and from the event, lodging and dining while at the venue, and the possibility of bus rides, as is the case at St. George. All of these expose athletes to risk. So while I completely understand why races are starting up again, and I'm even taking the calculated risk of participating at St. George, a risk that is significantly less given that I'm fully vaccinated, I have a few tips that I'd like to share as suggestions for anyone else who is considering returning to racing this spring. First of all, even if you're vaccinated, be militant about mask wearing and social distancing. The vaccines are really good, but they're not perfect. And with the rapid emergence of variants, we can't even be sure how effective they will remain. We are continuing to hear every single day about more and more people who, despite being fully vaccinated, are getting confirmed infections with this virus. Use higher quality masks when traveling and in enclosed spaces. Do not eat indoors at restaurants with lots of other people. Outdoor dining is safer, but even then not perfect. Don't bring unvaccinated spectators to these events. There are already a lot of people going. There's no need to expose others or bring more people who could be carrying the virus. Finally, don't share accommodation outside of a small number of people who you know well, and then only if you are all vaccinated. My own personal travel plans for St. George are to go alone, wearing an N95 and face protection while on the plane, lodge by myself where I will prepare my own meals or do takeout and wear an N95 for the bus ride on race morning to the swim start. 
I will see friends after the race, but in small groups, always outdoors, and only if they're all vaccinated. Is this overkill? Maybe. But after everything that I've seen of this pandemic, I am not prepared to say that it's done with us, just because we may feel that we are done with it. If going overboard with precautions is what it takes to ensure that we get to keep racing and not get a COVID infection along with the finisher's medal, then so be it. On the show today, I've previously looked at the evidence that showed that cold water immersion is unhelpful for aiding recovery and, in fact, may even be detrimental to performance. Well, today, I'm looking in the other direction in an effort to answer the question about the idea of whether or not heat can help aid recovery, prevent injury, and even enhance performance. Physiology suggests that this shouldn't be the case, but there's some interesting research in this area, and I'm going to take a look at it in just a bit. Later, I'm joined by two pretty amazing Sarahs. Sarah Gross is a former professional triathlete and Ironman champion. Sarah True is a current professional triathlete on hiatus because of the impending birth of her first child. Together, they are the voices of the podcast If We Were Riding, one of the many that are part of Sarah Gross's Live Feisty media company that produces all kinds of amazing content by women for women. We talk about many of the challenges facing women in sport, as well as the history and the future for both of them, and that is a conversation that I know you are all going to enjoy. Before that, I want to take a moment to remind you all once again of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of this show. The TriDoc podcast is, of course, a labor of love on my end, but there are still costs involved in bringing it to you. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help keep bringing it to you and others for just the price of a cup of coffee per month, you could sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to great bonus content that can be found on my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thank you in advance for considering. In June of 2005, I completed my second Ironman in Coeur Idaho. I remember a lot of details from that race, mostly because I had a much better day than I'd had at my first go at the distance in Penticton just the summer before. But one of the things that I remember quite clearly is that after taking some time to chillax in the athlete area and rehydrate, I was really, really very stiff and sore as I hobbled with my wife back to where we had parked our car. My quads were so tight, they were screaming with every step, and I began to wonder how I was going to make it. We had only gotten about 50 feet when we came to this area that had been set up for athletes and families, and right there, they had two big hot tubs. Now, as physicians, both my wife and I had been told pretty much forever that when you have acute pain or soreness due to any kind of injury, you don't use heat to treat it, because physiologically, this really isn't a great idea. But as I found myself standing there, unable to really ambulate at all, my wife and I both thought, well, maybe this could help. It certainly didn't seem like it's going to hurt anymore. And so I gingerly made my way up the steps, settled into the hot tub where I sat for a good 15 minutes. And when I emerged, I literally could not believe it. My legs were completely rejuvenated. I was able to walk. I was able to get around. And rather than becoming swollen and worse off, the pain and stiffness had completely disappeared. I was able to easily walk back to our car, and the rest of our trip was pretty uneventful. Now, I've thought back on that experience many times over the years, and wondered if anyone had ever done any good quality research to answer the question of whether or not the application of heat, rather than cold, might actually be beneficial after endurance events. Well, it turns out, many people have. 
And the results, while not completely overwhelming, are really interesting, and not at all what we might have thought. First, it's worth revisiting the physiology of injury, and especially of delayed-onset muscle soreness, or DOMS, and the evidence behind the use of local cold application, as well as cold water immersion. Now, injury is essentially at its base level the destruction of tissues and cells. The more severe the injury, the more significant the damage, with things like fractures or sprains resulting in the actual breakage of bones or ligaments, while strains merely involve damage to muscle, sometimes as tears in the tissue or, as is the case with DOMS, just as cellular damage. Now, the consequences of those injuries are pretty uniform, with increased permeability in the blood vessels in the area, resulting in fluid extravasation and an increase in inflammatory cells and chemicals. This starts as a cascade of events that manifests grossly as swelling, redness, warmth, and pain. And the degree to which there is all of these three things, swelling, redness, and warmth, is going to be directly proportional to the magnitude of the injury. So that more severe injuries have greater amounts of these symptoms, but even less significant injuries still have the same physiologic processes, but to a much less degree. Now, delayed onset muscle soreness is an example of an injury that occurs at the cellular level, where breakdowns in the integrity of cellular structures result in swelling and inflammation that cause stiffness and soreness in the affected muscle and can impact performance and result in a prolonged recovery. Now, the application of cold to an area in the form of an ice pack, for example, has a long history of use in medicine and a fair amount of not great evidence, but still decent research to support it. The application of cold causes vasoconstriction and reduces the amount of swelling and inflammation. It reduces the amount of blood flow to the area, decreases the amount of inflammatory cells getting in there, and decreases the amount of fluid extravasation, which is associated with some of the symptoms that are the result of injury. Now, interestingly, though, cold application doesn't impact the time to healing, nor does it really affect recovery. It simply reduces pain and swelling, both of which have psychologically positive effects. Now, way back in episode 22, I looked at the evidence behind an extension of the idea of the local application of cold to an injured area, and that is total immersion in cold water, or cold water immersion therapy of affected areas. If you heard that episode, then you know the evidence does not really support this practice, and in fact, suggests that it may be deleterious in impairing recovery and worsening muscle performance. This, despite the fact that cold immersion does provide positive psychological benefits. In other words, it feels really good, but it doesn't really do much good. Now, with respect to heat, the thinking on this has been pretty consistent. Because the response to heat is to increase local blood flow, it has always been thought that in the presence of injury, heat would be a bad thing, because it would only exacerbate the processes related to swelling and inflammation. However, there's a growing countervailing opinion, one that suggests increased blood flow to an injured area might not be such a bad thing, because improved blood flow means more oxygen, more removal of evil humors, and perhaps improved healing by bringing more of those inflammatory cells, which, while definitely involved in the injury process, are also integral to the healing process. So all of this brings me to the research that I found that looks at this question. Quite a few people have looked at heat versus cold in athletes, and while the results haven't been overwhelming, as I said before, I think they are compelling and definitely require us to revisit some long-held assumptions on this topic. A recent meta-analysis from researchers in China looked at several studies that compared local cold application, 
cold water immersion, local heat application, and heat immersion in the form of hot water or sauna use in athletes after intense bouts of exercise, and showed that all modalities were effective in reducing or preventing the pain associated with DOMS, or delayed onset muscle soreness, but the most effective modality was local heat application. Another research group at Purdue University has done a lot of work in this area, and in one of their studies they compared local heat application applied daily for four days to one leg after intense exercise to no treatment on the other leg, and showed very significant differences with the heat-treated leg having much less soreness and improved recovery. The scientists in this group posit that the effectiveness of heat comes from what I said before, improved blood flow to the damaged area, and on top of that, because of more blood flow because that blood is carrying with it nutrients, enhanced glycogen synthesis, both because you have more glucose coming to the area to allow for the rebuilding of uh, replenishment of glycogen, but also because heat enhances the activity of the enzymes involved in this process. That same group out of Purdue has done studies on animals, and even humans, where they have taken muscle biopsies in subjects being treated with heat therapy, and have shown quite conclusively that at the cellular level, there are both chemical and physical signs that heat confers real benefits over cold after exercise. Another group, another group of researchers at uh, Loma Linda University in California have also explored this question, and have also come to somewhat similar conclusions. In one of their papers, they looked at the application of heat or cold either immediately or 24 hours after exercise and found that both modalities worked pretty well to both to prevent pain and to improve overall mobility. But the immediate application of either temperature was superior to the delayed application. In a second study, the same group showed that prolonged application of hot packs for as much as 24 hours worked the best of all to prevent soreness, though obviously this is practically somewhat difficult when compared to the application of hot packs for a shorter amount of time. Finally, it's worth considering the work of a group out of Switzerland who looked at the concept of heat therapy as a modality to accelerate recovery in triathletes in an effort to allow them to return to competition sooner. This group has not yet performed any experiments, but rather reviewed the existing evidence in order to generate hypotheses in order to develop future research questions. In their estimation, immersion strategies such as sauna or hot tub therapy are probably not the best way to go because they tend to elevate core body temperature and therefore cannot be applied for long enough and may be associated with systemic effects that might be counterproductive. But, like the other groups that I have mentioned, they feel pretty good about the idea of locally applied heat therapy as a means to improve local blood flow, accelerate repair and recovery of injured muscle, and accelerate performance and return to baseline strength. This is all pretty interesting stuff, and I actually reached out to the researcher at Purdue University who's done a lot of work in this area. I asked him what brought him to this idea of using heat instead of cold, given that cold has been the accepted modality to treat these kinds of efforts for so long. And what he told me really cast a lot of illumination to this idea. What he studies is actually ways to improve the amount of vascular blood flow to the distal limbs that are affected in patients who have peripheral artery disease. And he had noted in earlier animal research that the application of heat actually causes angiogenesis or the development of new blood vessels and improved blood flow. He then took that research and uh, theorized that this might actually benefit athletes as well. And so he started doing research to demonstrate that indeed, when people were 
asked to exert themselves under controlled circumstances that the application of heat definitely improved blood flow to the area afterwards and by doing so actually accelerated the repair of tissues, improved their recovery, and allowed them to return to a baseline performance sooner than if they had used cold as that treatment modality. Now, none of this is really earth-shattering. As I said, the discrepancies or the differences between hot and cold have not been really all that clear or demonstrate that heat performs significantly better. In fact, most of the research has shown that heat performs as well or modestly better than cold therapy. But this is really surprising and definitely compelling given everything that we've thought up until this point. If future research goes on to substantiate what has been shown, then we could be looking at a real revision of our notions of the best post-exercise recovery protocols and be seeing more hot tubs in the athlete areas of the finish of Ironman races in the near future. For now, I would counsel athletes that if they enjoy the sensation of either local heat packs or a hot tub after an event when they're feeling particularly sore, they should by all means not feel any hesitation in partaking in that because the research to this point suggests that especially in the case of delayed onset muscle soreness heat may be the way to go and not cold do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast well email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com Sarah Gross and Sarah True are the dynamic duo behind the podcast, If We Were Riding, one of the many podcasts that celebrate women in sport and can be found among the many excellent podcasts geared towards women on the Live Feisty website that was founded by Sarah Gross back in 2017. Well, a few weeks ago, I had the great pleasure of talking with both Sarah Gross and Sarah True, who are themselves very accomplished professional triathletes. Sarah Gross retired, Sarah True now taking a little bit of a hiatus because of the impending birth of her uh, baby that's coming uh, this summer. But the conversation that we had was incredibly enjoyable and really informative and went on for like something like an hour. So I've split the conversation into two. And the first part of that is coming up right now. The second part will be on the next episode of the TriDog podcast. Here then is part one of my conversation with Sarah Gross and Sarah True. Sarah True, Sarah Gross, thank you so much for joining me today on the TriDoc Podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you both. Um, you guys are uh, terrific to listen to. I love the chemistry you both have. And when uh, Sarah Gross asked me if I wanted to have you on individually or together, I said, oh, no, I've got to take advantage of that chemistry and have you together. Um, that being said, I'm going to start by asking you uh, uh, questions individually, but I, I welcome input from both of you. Um, Sarah Gross, Tell us about Live Feisty. Uh, it's been going since 2017. What, what's the birth story and, and, and how did it come to be? And, you know, how did you get it to where it is now? Um, yeah. So, yeah, Live Feisty, we've been almost four years now. Uh, and essentially, I wanted to start creating content uh, for, and I started in triathlon space, obviously, because I was a pro triathlete. And uh, I wanted to start making content that was by women. Um, and that showed a female perspective in, in triathlon. And I think that was missing quite a lot. Um, and we also wanted to cover the pro women's race, for example, um, and do other things that were just from a different perspective. So that's, that's sort of where I started, I, I think. And I, I wanted to distinguish, too, between creating content 
for women <laughs> as opposed to by women. So it's like we're women and we're talking and we're doing our thing. And like Sarah and I, our listeners are probably 50% male, um, for example. You know, like the idea that that men aren't interested in listening to what women have to say is a little bit ridiculous. So um, that was definitely part of what we were doing at the outset. And yeah, so we started, now we're up to six podcasts. Not all of them are in uh, not all of them are in the triathlon space. And we have since launched some podcasts that are very specific to women's in- needs, like the Feisty Menopause podcast, for example, for active women kind of in their 40s and beyond. Um, but again, I, I still, I think the same thing. I was actually just thinking about this when I, was, when I, was, I showered after my session right before um, we came on. And I, you know, why should talking about menopause seem so, seem like this weird niche thing? when it's 50% of the population that are going to experience it. Like there's something kind of wrong with the way that we see um, women's perspectives and women's issues in that way. So I think we'll just keep going and keep talking about things until it becomes mainstream and normal to talk about menopause and pregnancy and periods. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I see that as a physician, Uh, I have a level of comfort of talking about these things with my athletes, but I know when I've spoken with other coaches and other triathletes, they sometimes don't have that level of comfort. And I think it comes from just, like you said, it not being talked about openly, but I've really seen a shift in the last couple of years and I'm seeing Mm -hmm. a lot more discussion, certainly with recognition of uh, the female athlete triad and, and coaches being much more aware of watching for that in their own athletes. Uh, That's certainly made it uh, more acceptable to talk about these things. And, And it's only I see it only as a positive thing. What do you see, uh, Sarah Gross, as you know some of the main issues facing women in triathlon and endurance sport, you know today? What are some of the issues that you'd like to see tackled? Oh, great question. I think um, you know in triathlon we're we're really lucky, and we have had equal prize money from the beginning, um, and we do have a very different environment where. Um, I think women have really felt part of the sport since the beginning. And and that's worth recognizing. It's not the same in every sport. Certainly, if you look at cycling or, I don't know, American football, (laughs) to take an extreme example, you know. Um, So I think in a way, we're doing really well. Um, And sometimes we get stuck on saying, well, we have equal prize money, so everything's okay. Right. And, and that's not necessarily the case. And you can't sort of separate a sport from the culture in which it's from the culture from which it's come. And really sport as an activity in general is kind of designed to, I don't know what you'd say, like show off men's prowess in a way. Um, the fastest person from the beginning to the end is typically going to be a man in any race. And the, the sport is designed that way. And so um, as women, it's sort of hard to figure out what our place is. Culturally, I think a lot of women, especially now older women, figuring out how uh, sport and activity uh, fits into their lives and and allowing it to be okay to take time out from the other things that we see as priorities and and do sport. Um, So I think there's some cultural shifts and mindset shifts that can happen um, that we can all be a part of. You know, that's part of why I started the media company too, is to like let's just talk about stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and see what happens. Um, so, or like normalize some of these uh, experiences that we have. Uh, I think as well, yeah. as, as women, we've all been talked down to in a bike shop uh, once or twice, or in a race, we've all had that experience of someone not wanting to let us overtake them or someone sitting behind us on the bike and then commenting on our butts, like, or, you know, like there's so many 
times when these things happen because we are still like we're still a minority. Wait, you mean that happens to you too? <laughs> Do people comment on your butt, Jeff? <laughs> Oh, if only, if only. I think now they only comment on how it gives them a nice draft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, you're so right on all of those things. And uh, I I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed is seeing how uh, the World Triathlon Corporation Ironman has uh, really made the sport more accessible uh, with the introduction of the women's um, day for the 70.3 World Championship. That, to me, uh, was a huge uh, step forward. And uh, that kind of parity can only make things better. And I'd love to see more of that. I wish there was a way for them to equalize Kona the same way, um, you know, and have a women-specific race. Because, let's face it, I remember Daniela Reef saying the first time that she uh, won the 70.3 event, how much she enjoyed being the first person across the line, as opposed to, you know, when yeah. they compete against the men, there's, there's often a pro men, and then even a couple of age groupers might get in across uh, before them. So, um yeah, that that experience and seeing that happen to me is terrific and I'd love to see more of it. Yeah, I I think you know I I do I do love the 2-day format and I think w- women across triathlon were excited about that format in the 70.3. Uh but also typical of Ironman, I think sometimes they, they'll take a step, but refuse to go all the way with something. So, for example, like they didn't have as many women racing on the on, on the Saturday as they had men on the Sunday. And that's not because of lack of interest. Like women would have taken those spots. They just didn't offer them those spots. Um, or then they gave them extra spot, gave us women and ex- extra spots in a different way than they handed out the men's spots in terms of the, through the women for try initiative. So it was, there was some very awkward, weird things happening there too, that shows that they're, you know, I think they're still scared that at some point the women are going to rise up and ask actual for equal representation in Kona, um, in the age group ranks too. And, um, I mean, I know I've talked to people inside Ironman quite a bit about that, um, but, and I understand they have a business to run, um, but still it's, it's one of those examples of like, it's great. And we like, amazing. Like you're at 75% now or you're 80%. Like, let's just take this over the line and, and have like full representation and full equality. But, um, it's, it's not quite there. Sarah true. I am, uh, really interested in getting your perspective on what it's like, uh, not just being a podcaster with Sarah gross, but of course being a female pro triathlete in the age of COVID, um, as an age grouper. And especially as a physician, it's been maddening to watch events go forward, uh, last year specifically when cases were really out of control in states where cases were even more out of control and seeing huge crowds of people show up. I I worried not so much about the actual event. I worry about everything that goes on around the event, staying in hotels, eating at restaurants, et cetera. But for me, I mean, the decision is less complicated because I have a full-time job. Uh, You know, I work as a physician, training and triathlon are essentially my, you know, second job, if you will, unpaid. For you, however, it's a much different story. So I'm curious about the calculus that goes into making a decision as a pro triathlete about whether or not you will participate in these events. And, you know, as things ease up a little bit now, how you're approaching the coming season. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, so... Like you, I listened to the CDC guidelines. I was very alarmed when events were still going, when the CD was, CDC was saying, please do not travel unless it is absolutely non-essential. And yes, this is my job, but is it non-essential? I, that is highly debatable. At the end of the day, it's still sport. 
you know, it's it's not something that as a society uh, we can we need to have people racing. Uh, it's nice to have. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to go out and race, but is it non-essential? Um, definitely not. So obviously the, the calculation changes even, even more when you have money being dangled. So when you have, you know, governing bodies or whomever saying, okay, here's the prize purse, or this is a world championship, all of a sudden the calculation changes. So whatever rational part of your brain is like, hey, listen, the right thing to do as a member of the society, as a member of this country to try to keep caseloads down is to stay at home, to listen to the CDC, minimize travel, you know, try to minimize exposure to myself and to other people. You know, that is what we know to be the right thing. Um, you know, those of us who like science, uh, which unfortunately is not everybody, you know, it definitely some... All of a sudden that calculation changes when you say, when it feels like you are losing something by not going to these races. So that rational part of your brain that realizes there's risk to yourself and risk to others, all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's money on the line. If I don't go to this race, then I may not qualify for this other race down the road. And all of a sudden things change completely. So, you know, that part of you that probably would do the responsible thing because you have the sense of panic that kind of gets in the way of that critical thinking, it gets us to training camps and jumping around planes and going to races. When I think most of us, like I, my peers are pretty smart people, but for whatever reason, you know, that fear, that fear that other people are, might get something that you don't, it, it really, it, compels people to do things that may not necessarily be socially responsible. So, you know, for, for me, I have a choice. Like last year, so early March, um, about half my family's in healthcare. And thankfully my brother was a canary in the coal mine for my family. Even back in February, he's like, this is bad. This is going to be really bad guys. Um, <laughs> so I'm thankful for those people because early on, he's like, listen, Sarah, Ben, so my, my, my husband's also a professional athlete. He's like, you guys are not probably going to be racing this, this year. Uh, you know, just wrap your heads around the fact that 2020 is a wash. The Olympics are going to be canceled. Like, you know, the major events are just not going to happen. Best case scenario is there will be some limited elites only events later in the year. If the U S gets control of this quickly. And from his side of things, like he was not seeing that we would necessarily get things under control quickly. And that's exactly what panned out. Um, you know, thank goodness for, their, for the vaccine rollout being incredibly fast, you know, just obviously record breaking. So we're all looking at, you know, down the road, like, should we be racing normally by the summer? Probably. And that's, that's exceedingly fast if you think, I mean, you know better than I do, the, the normal development for vaccines. But in the meantime, we all have to weigh, you know, whether or not we're going to put aside our, our self-interest to think about our role in, you know, how this continues to potentially be spread. So for, for me, I just, I wouldn't be able to sleep well. Um, 
acting like everything is normal right now. And I, I, I understand that my peers have made a different calculation. Um, but yeah, I like science, man. <laughs> Do you know, uh, have you or other athletes uh, heard any pressure from sponsors to participate and to get out there? Uh, so pressure. I've definitely gotten questions about when I'm going to race. And so this, this is, so for me, uh, most of them have been really good about it. My, my husband's calculation changed very much this year because for years, uh, you know, our, uh, our combined income, the majority of it came from his shoe contract, uh, which was not renewed this year. And all of a sudden, uh, most of our income stream was lost. So he doesn't have a sponsor, has to basically prove that he's still worthy of investing in. And a couple of weeks ago, went to California to do essentially a time trial, uh, but he went on a plane. He did everything that we wouldn't necessarily have done if there wasn't that pressure to try to prove that he was still worthy of investing in for a, you know, the marketing team of the company. So it's, I'm, I'm fortunate because I, I, I've had questions, uh, but I think they understand where I'm coming from. And I'm also trying to think outside the box about how I can provide value to them while I'm not racing. Uh, but his, his, his situation has changed a bit. And, you know, in the defense of my peers who have decided to go to these big races, for a lot of them, they don't, they didn't necessarily have the financial cushion to be able to say this year, you know, it's not the right thing for me to race. They may not have been able to make that decision because they do have to pay for rent. They do have to pay for these things. And they're saying, listen, if there's this major rent race happening in a little hotbed of COVID and <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm going to go because that check might make the difference between whether or not I can pay for my mortgage next year or not. Yeah. You know, we, we had enough in savings that we weren't in that position. And we, that is, that is the, that extends beyond sport. That calculation has been made by tons of people, whether or not they can financially afford to take risks. Yeah. And it's been a huge toll, uh, on everyone. I mean, yeah. mental health has been, you know, a, a huge issue for people throughout this pandemic, which brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I, I, I know that you've been quite candid about issues related to your mental health in the past. And I want to, uh, be on record thanking you for that, because I think it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, I know that, uh, we spoke before Sarah Gross, uh, you mentioned about how, you know, we need to, talk more about women's issues to make it more acceptable. Well, I think mental health falls under the same rubric. If uh, we talked about it more, it would become more acceptable to talk about it even more, and then people wouldn't have to suffer in silence. So I thank you for that. But I'd, I'd like to know, um, you know, if you have any advice for people, uh, you know, who might be struggling in silence, especially now during COVID, uh, how did you get through to become the person you are now? And, and how can people who are dealing with mental health issues, what, what's the best strategy for them to, to move forward? Yeah, so 
you know, I started experiencing depression when I was about 13, which is, you know, very common time for it start starting around puberty for, for, for women. And that for me, I was, I guess, a late bloomer. I don't know. Uh, but so it's, it's something that I always thought was incompatible with high performance sport. You know, that was, that was the message I was given that there was something wrong that I had to fix it to be able to become, you know, an Olympian to become a world-class athlete. That part of me would not gel. You know, that was the message that I had gotten. Uh, you know, sports psychologists will talk about performance. They'll talk about, you know, optimization on race day, things like that. They rarely will talk to athlete clients about at least my experience with the USOC. Uh, they rarely will talk about athletes about general stuff. Um, you know, in my case, it was depression and, and developing a skill set to be able to manage periods of depression. So when, when you're in an episode of like major depressive disorder, does that athlete, does that person have the skills at their disposal to be able to negotiate that period of time to kind of get through it, to have things normalize? Do they know who to reach out to? Do they, do they understand that it's a temporary thing that their their thoughts are not real you know all these all these skills that a lot of people don't necessarily develop and i think that's where you know there's there's an overlap with being an athlete and i kind of reached the point where after a major depressive uh you know episode where like i had suicidal ideations it was it was really really bad very low point and I'm like, listen, I was able to get through this, not because I'm special. Um, it could have met a very different end if through sport I hadn't developed a skill set. And some of that was because that's just the way I'm wired. We're like, you know, I, I understood how my, my thought processes worked as an athlete and understood that a lot of those arts aren't necessarily real. I also worked with a therapist who wasn't sports psychology focused for, for multiple years. But at that point in my life, if I hadn't developed those skills, if I hadn't like had this growth mindset where this is not who I am, I can change my thought patterns. I can change things over time. Um, like I'm, I'm a big proponent, proponent of cognitive uh, behavioral therapy. Like it, it has really good evidence-based uh, research behind it where, you know, essentially we think over time, instead of thinking of our minds as being something that is, you know, like I am, I am my depression. It's, these are symptoms and you, if, like any other, any other physical ailment, <laughs> if you have the tools to kind of get through the symptoms, then you'll come out a better place. But if you think that it can't change, if you think that it's it's fixed, then you're not going to be setting yourself up to be able to change, to be able to develop those skills, to be better at it the next time it happens. Yeah. So is your advice for people who might be struggling now then to really look inwards and be able to accept the help that they need and, and, and to yeah. then reach out. Yeah. Well, cause so as in high performance sport, we're able to look objectively like at our, our data, be like, okay, I want to be at this certain point. Um, and 
this is what I need to do to get there. But when it comes to mental health, we often just feel like this, this is, especially if you are in a bit of a rough patch, you start to think that is, that's what defines you. So I guess my advice is just to use that same approach that you would have as that, where try to be objective and realize that your thoughts are not real, that whatever rough patch will pass and having therapy, you know, if, if you need to turn to medication to get you, you know, through a rougher patch, I, both, both are more effective together then. So I think we definitely lean on, on pharmaceuticals as a crutch too much, but if you think about developing skills over the long term, you need to do both. You need, you need to have the, in this case, like antidepressants or whatever the case might be. Um, you know, if you're, if you're managing a, an anxiety disorder, like also same, same application, like the medication will work, be far more effective if you have therapy. And that therapy is really about trying to rework the way you think over the long term. And it's, it's highly effective. Yeah. And, and you know of what you speak, not just from your experience, but also because I understand you are now pursuing a PhD. Is that correct? In uh, psychology? Uh, so I'm, I'm working, I'm working on my prerequisites, Okay, but you know, I think that's the next stage of, of my, my, my next career, something I'm really passionate about because, you know, I, I'm really interested in, in a mental health aspect of, of integrated care. I, you know, our hospital system needs it. We need, we need more practitioners just to be treating the whole body. And cause I mean, whether you're talking about helping people develop, uh, you know, routines to be staying on top of their medication. Okay. Why are they not taking their med- medication you know, on a regular basis, your primary care physician is not going to delve into that. So why aren't we working together, you know, with, with a, with the psychologist, along with your primary care, along with your specialist, and just trying to treat the whole individual. And I think, you know, that's, that's where we need to be as a country. Um, So that idea really makes me excited because that's been my lived experience, you know, how I treated myself as an athlete from the head down was totally different from how I was taught to treat myself from, you know, just mentally. And once I started applying the same sort of skill set that I did, you know, very objective skill set to my, my physical training, it really helped me not just as an athlete, but more importantly, as a person. Yeah, I love that lesson of uh, multidisciplinary, you know, getting everybody involved and working to the whole person. I think that's yeah. terrific. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, it's 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 been a, a successful journey for you so far, and I look forward to hearing more about it as you progress. Um, I want to return to some of the women's issues, and this is going to be for both of the Sarahs. Um, and, um, you know, 2020, obviously a momentous year, very difficult uh, in so many ways. We saw so much happening outside of just just the pandemic, uh, we had uh, all of the racial injustice and all of the protests related to that. But 
some of that stuff trickled down into, believe it or not, the women's triathlon. Uh, we saw Ironman have to shut down the Women for Try message board and Facebook group because of some of the discourse that was going on on there. And previously, that had been an incredibly positive, uh, very supportive kind of group. And not unlike so many other things that we've seen on social media, uh, you know, it doesn't take much to kind of upset the apple cart in the, in that regard. And I'm curious, do you guys lament the loss of that group? Uh, do you think there's a way to to bring women together and have their conversation without necessarily, you know, beginning to get at each other's throats? And I'll leave it to, to you guys to decide. Oh, who Jeff, first. I just, you just play into a stereotype about women. Uh, no, because I believe that that's not unique to women. I, 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 I see that. I see that amongst men in a much more violent I'm, I'm, way. I'm yeah. just giving you a hard time. <laughs> can I, can I speak to that one about the women for tri group a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. I, um, you know, I was in a conversation, I've been in a conversation about women in triathlon for a long time uh, with Ironman. Sometimes I'm more in more in the conversation than not. But, um, you know, I think when when people ask for change, so when we asked to have equal slots for the pro women in Kona and, and were turned down um, for that, very quickly after that, Ironman launched the Women for Try initiative to try to encourage more women into the sport, um, which that doesn't, it doesn't make it bad, but it was kind of like, here's, we're, we're asking for one thing and they're like, okay, here, we're going to do this other thing. And, um, and, and it was a great thing. Like, you're right, Jeff, that like, there were a lot of women encouraging each other in there. There was a lot of positive coming out of that group. There were 50,000 people in there, um, who were able to talk to each other and share their issues. Um, but I've seen this happen before with other organizations where if you, um, if there's a problem and brought up like a social justice problem related problem, and you try to solve that problem with a volunteer committee that really has no power within the organization, what you end up with is something that's sitting on kind of shaky ground unless you bring the issues into your organization. So I can remember trying to say at the time, like, listen, I think we need to analyze a little bit more deeply what's happening around um, the, the, the conversation around women in Iron Man more broadly. Um, and I think that part of what happened with that Women for Try group is that it it was essentially moderated by volunteers, you know, and those volunteers do um, deserve to be applauded for what they're doing. They're doing free work to try to get, to try to get more people, more women into Ironman, right? And they're doing a, a good job. Um, the challenge is that when things come up that aren't, that need to be handled delicately, um, and when people seem to be posting things that are sort of anti-Black Lives Matter, or people are shutting each other down, like this is not a political, this is not a place to talk about politics when you're actually talking about a woman's experience who comes from a non-white demographic, um, and those things can be need to be handled in a certain way by someone who knows how to talk about those things. And I think they just did not see that coming as um, a potential. Uh, and it and it sort of imploded or exploded. I don't know how to say it. Like I wouldn't. I would have never wished that on that group. But it did not surprise me when it yeah. happened um, because it was not set up on a secure foundation. That's a great point. I mean, I think that's uh, it's a lesson to be learned for anybody who's looking to be successful in social media because social media has that you know potential 
all the time. As a group grows, you're always, you know, bringing in more people. And as you bring in more people, you're going to get conflict. And if you don't set it up in advance to know how you're going to manage that conflict, then you're in for trouble. So I think that's yeah. Point. So we like, for example, we have I've got 23 people between everyone from the people who work full time at Live Feisty to um, folks who just you know have do one podcast with us or something. There's 23 people. And of those 23 people, three of them have expertise in, in diversity and inclusion, you know? So I always have someone to go to when it's like, Hey, not just should I post this, but how do we, how do we deal with our, um, like one of our challenges right now is that we're like our core group, our core leadership group, we're all white. Um, and that's something that I, that I'm, looking at very closely, like how, and, and I, and we have to be really careful about and careful about how we include people. So I take that stuff really seriously. Um, and so, and I just, yeah, it is, it's like a word of warning for any company at all. You know, did, did anyone see, did anyone see the Burger King explosion? No. Yesterday, yesterday was International Women's Day. Yes. <laughs> this is like for a, for a little bit of levity where we're, when we're recording, it's March 9th today. And um, Burger King came up with this. Um, they wanted to have a campaign to encourage more women to become chefs because only 20% of women are chefs, right? So you mean 20% of chefs are women? Sorry, 20%. Yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> That'd be a lot of chefs, chefs otherwise. 20% <laughs> of women are chefs. It's amazing. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. And so there's, and so they wanted to encourage more women to become chefs or like be part of that. And their tweet about it came out as women belong in the kitchen. Oh no. <laughs> With no other context. Oh, just no. that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Not, not well thought out. Did, yeah. Somebody didn't didn't, didn't go that. over well. Didn't yeah. go over well. <laughs> so, so somebody there needed to go. And I think probably some people in, in the organization thought, okay, people will be able to take the joke, you know, or think, that, but like somebody needed to put up their hand and say, um, I don't think we're ready for that joke. <laughs> Just FYI. Wow. Yeah. That's great. What a great story. That's a great cautionary tale for. Right. How- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that concludes part one of my conversation with Sarah Gross and Sarah True. The second part and the conclusion of that conversation will be on the next episode of the TriDoc Podcast. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel, where you will find brand new content, a video that I produced when I was in St. George, Utah a couple of weeks ago, all about triathlon camps. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash podcast and getting yourself even more bonus content. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. 
This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and part two of my interview with Sarah Gross and Sarah True. Until then, train hard, train healthy.